We're in Colossians 3, 5 through 11 today. If, if you would take the Bible in the pew in front of you, or if you brought a copy of your own, or if you have one on your smartphone, it'll be helpful if you have it with you while we read through this. Uh, a quick note, uh, at the end of the service, we're going to do just a brief bit of business. Uh, so I, I know some of you are not members of our church, and, and you can feel free to leave or stay. It doesn't matter, but uh, we need to vote on our upcoming budget. Uh, the, the budget year for us starts in October, so we need to approve the proposed budget if, if it's your pleasure to do so. So I'll take a quick voice vote of all the members of our church. I say that because in the first service, true story, I, I, I prayed, I got down, we sang our songs, I walked out and got to the atrium and I saw Alan Armstrong say, business meeting? And I turned around and I had to go all the way back and had to call to everybody, hey, hey, come back, we need to do this, which is... Slightly unprofessional. So um, if you see me do that again this time, and it's not an impossibility that I will forget again, I want you to grab me and throw me back, okay? Uh, you have my permission. Use whatever force is necessary. So Colossians 3, 5 through 11. So uh, we're talking about making Jesus preeminent in our lives. One of the things that should happen when Jesus is number one in our church, in our own hearts individually, is we should see change. We should see progress. We should see growth in the areas of love and joy and peace and patience with other people and humility and generosity and all those qualities we tend to lack. We should, in short, start to represent Jesus better, start to be more like him, start to attract others to him, and start to be more of a blessing to the people around us and less of a burden to the people around us. And yet, one of the discouraging things for a lot of Christians is we believe the right stuff, we've gone through the right steps, we prayed the prayer, we got baptized, we go to church, and yet there doesn't seem to be progress. And I think it's because we've forgotten what salvation really is. So, so it's helpful to me to picture it this way because I've lived my whole life in Texas. Some of you are from out of state. And hopefully, hopefully this will still resonate with you. So you've probably been in a cow pasture at least once in your life, right? Or you've driven past it. If you're the most city-fied of city slickers, you've driven past them and you've seen what's in a cow pasture. There's obviously cows. There's trees and brush. There's, there's all kinds of grasses, you know, some of it that's useful, some of it that's not. And, and there's, of course, cow pies. That's not our point. But if you owned a, a cow pasture and you decided, you know, I'm tired of going to the grocery store to get produce, I'm going to grow my own. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and I'm going to plant some peas and some corn and some potatoes and some okra and some squash and some fruit of various kinds, maybe some tomatoes and also some apples and, and peaches and watermelons, etc. I'm going to just go out and plant those things. It wouldn't work because it's a cow pasture. It's not meant for planting crops. Even if you took a spade and you did the hard work of digging up the soil so you could plant your crops, you would run out of steam long before you had uncovered enough dirt to plant enough, uh, uh, enough seed to feed your family. So what needs to happen is something outside yourself. See, it's like us. We can't change on our own. We, we, can, we can try really hard, and in certain circumstances, when the, when, the, when the moment is right, we can do the right thing, but it's not consistent. And we can, we can try to turn over a new leaf in various areas of our lives, but it never sticks. We need some force, some strength outside of ourselves to come in and turn things over. 
And so what you would need in that, in that cow pasture is a, a tractor with a disc implement on the back and it would come in and it would turn over the soil. And suddenly, instead of seeing all this brush and all this grass, you would see fresh topsoil. And then you could plant. And then it would grow almost anything. But here's what they don't tell you. See, that's the picture of salvation. That's the Holy Spirit coming in and changing your nature so that you can bear fruit for Christ, so that you can become more like him. That's being born again. What they don't tell you in churches like ours often enough is that that's the beginning, not the end of the journey. We have an invitation at the end of every service because we want to give the opportunity for people who feel led to take that step of obedience and be saved. We want that to happen, but that's the beginning of the journey. What you don't often hear is that from that point on, it takes hard work on your point because if you don't tend your soul, the weeds come back. And if you don't tend your, soul at oil, tend your soul at all, pretty soon your field will look just like it did before. And you certainly won't bear fruit. And what does that mean? Some of you know this. Some of you do this. Some of you do this for fun, which I don't understand. But, but you garden, and when you do, it, it takes daily work. You have to take a hoe in your hand, and that means bending over at the waist in the hot, hot sun and digging up weeds by the root so they don't come back. And it has to be a constant thing every day on the lookout because otherwise those weeds will choke out the life. And that's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about killing the sin in our lives because there's really two steps to becoming like Christ and experiencing progress. There's killing the sin and putting on Jesus. We'll talk about that second part next week when we start verse 12. But look at verse 5. Look at the first three words, put to death. Put to death. If you have a King James Bible, which some of you might have, it's the word mortify, which is a great word. It's a word we don't use anymore, but it, it's so picturesque and perfect. The old, the old Puritans used to call it mortification of sin. You would, you would read volumes after volumes of how to mortify sin. One of the old Puritans, I don't remember which one, said, you need to be killing sin or it will be killing you. And I think that's a good way to put it. So he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Mortification of sin, killing sin in your life, that's what needs to happen. And listen, that, let me, let me get this on a practical level. Some of us are married, and some of us wish that our marriages were stronger and more fulfilling. And one of the things that I discovered after being married a little while is I couldn't just sit there and wish that my wife would change, because that never works. And the more I want that to happen, the less it's going to happen, because I, I got news for you, that's offensive to someone else to say, the problem in our relationship is you. You need to change. So what I had to realize is there were parts of myself that I had to kill in order to be the spouse she needed and deserved. And she had to do the same thing. I couldn't control what she did. I, all I could control is what I did. By the way, this still goes on. 
been married 30 plus years and it's a lot better now, but it still goes on. There's still sin that I need to kill. And so does she. I can't control what she does. I can control what I do. So this is on a practical level. If you want to see things in your life improve, don't look at your outward circumstances. Look at yourself and say, what is there in me that I need to destroy to bring freedom, to bring life, to bring fruit? We can assume that the, the things that Paul lists, we're going to talk through every one of them this morning. These are things that he's talking about because Epaphras, the pastor of the, of the uh, Colossian church, has come to Paul in prison and has said, here's the things my church is struggling with. Can you give us a letter, some encouragement? And so he lists them. This is not a comprehensive list. There are sins that aren't listed here that you and I stumble over and struggle with. But you can break them down into three categories. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the three categories, and then I'm going to talk about what we need to do to destroy sin in our lives, okay? So the first category, oh, and by the way, if you want to get something out of this sermon, or even if you don't, do me this favor, okay? Don't let your mind drift onto other people because you're going to, remember we talked about legalism last week. Your tendency, our tendency is when we hear a sermon about sin is to think, oh, I wish so-and-so could hear this. You know, there's, there she is. I hope she's listening because this is, this is preached right at her. Resist that. That is the devil. That is not the Holy Spirit saying that. The Holy Spirit speaks to you about you, not about somebody else, okay? All right, so the first category, wanting the wrong things. Verse 5 is all about disordered desire, which is a common theme in Scripture. Desire itself is good. God made us to desire certain things. God created us with a desire for food so we wouldn't starve to death. God created us with a desire for the opposite sex so that we would perpetuate the human race, right? There are good desires, but when you want the wrong things, when you want things that you should not have, and you let those desires take hold of your heart and control you and consume you, that's where sin comes in. So you should have learned this in kindergarten, if not before, when you're sitting in the lunchroom and you notice that Susie's mom packed a, a Twinkie in her lunch and, and your mom packed a half a banana. And you think, I'm bigger than Susie. I could bop her on the head and take her Twinkie, but that's not right. Or maybe Susie's bigger than you and, and you're like, she could beat the ever-loving tar out of me, so I better not take her Twinkie. Either way... Even if you don't do some outward sin, you're sitting there and your lunch is ruined. Before you were all excited because your mom made your favorite sandwich, but now all you can think about is that half banana made your sandwich taste like banana. And you wish you had that Twinkie. And you should have gotten to the point at some point in your life where you could say, number one, Twinkies are garbage. But number two, the things that I don't have should not ruin the things that I do have. And the things that I don't have should not, should not make me hate anybody because God gives far more than I need. Wanting the wrong things. When the, the actress Mia Farrow found out that her husband Woody Allen was carrying on an affair with her adopted daughter and she confronted him, his excuse was, what could I do? The heart wants what it wants. That's our nature to want the wrong things and to think, I can't do anything about it. I can't help what I desire. Yes, but you can kill evil desire. You can refuse to let it take your heart captive. He lists several kinds of evil desire, and the first four all have the same thing in common. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. 
Those are all having to do with sexual desire, which that's a common topic in the scriptures and something that uh, we talk about today. You, you can see culturally we've sort of come full circle because in Paul's day, this Christian sexual ethic was bizarre. No one understood it. How can Christians live this way? Because the Roman and Greek sexual ethic was a man can do whatever he wants uh, unless it's taking someone's wife because the wife is his property, so you can't do that. But otherwise, a man can do whatever he wants to a woman. No one said anything about it. A man could do anything he wants to a child. Pedophilia was celebrated in Roman culture. And then after the Christian faith had been around for a generation or two, the Romans looked around and said, why are so many women becoming believers in this Jesus? Well, it's because they saw that wherever Christianity spread, suddenly the, the status of women was lifted up and women suddenly felt safe and protected because here was, a, here was an ethic that said, if you touch a woman, you're touching a daughter of the king. If you touch a child, you're touching the child of a king. And he does not take that lightly. And then for all these centuries, Western culture, wherever Christendom, as we called it, reigned, had this sexual ethic that we believed in, that we preached, even if we didn't always practice it perfectly. That's what guided us. And then in the last 60 years, we've come back to this idea that, well, you know, we ought to be able to do whatever we want to do. That's what happiness looks like, is when you can do whatever you want to do and no one can tell you differently. So for 60 years, we've been sort of under that new ethic, and I want to ask you the question, honestly, whether you're 60 years old or older or not, I want to ask you, has, has life gotten better under this new regime? Are people more emotionally healthy than they were in the early 1960s? Are families more secure and stable and healthy and happy? Is divorce less common? Is sexual assault less common? Is, is child abuse, child molestation, has that become less common? Has, has life improved in any way by throwing off the shackles, so-called, of God's truth on this topic? Andy Stanley pastors a church in suburban Atlanta, and they target young professionals who aren't believers in Christ. So if you go to that church, you'll be standing amongst a bunch of people who are about 20 or 30 and don't have any history in church. And one day, a, a, several years ago, a young woman came to him and said, hey, um, I've been visiting your church and you Christians aren't as crazy as I thought, but I just have to tell you, I'll, I can never be a Christian because what the Bible says about sex is, is just stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Nobody can live that way. And Andy Stanley's reply was, well, let me ask you, has the ethic you've been living under made your life better or just more complicated? And she couldn't answer. See, God knows what misplaced desire, what disordered desire does to us. The only thing in verse 5 that's not related to sexual desire is covetousness or greed, which Paul identifies as idolatry, which may sound unusual to you, since a greedy person doesn't bow down before an idol or pray to a god. But what is idolatry? Idolatry is simply anytime you expect something other than God to do for you what only God can do. What is greed? Greed is saying, I can never be happy unless I can live this lifestyle, unless I can drive this car, unless I can live in this neighborhood, unless I can make this much money. That's idolatry. And whether it's teenagers killing each other for a pair of Jordans, or men and women in business suits destroying their families because they need that next step up the ladder, or whether it's a politician who writes a law that benefits a company that he owns stock in, which happens all the time. 
Greed makes otherwise reasonable people do horrific things. And one of the down, one of the disheartening things for me as a pastor is I've been a pastor over half my life. And I've heard a lot of people be honest about a lot of sins, but I almost never hear anybody come up and say, you know, pastor, my, my struggle is greed and covetousness. I'm not happy with what I have and I'm letting things that I don't have take away my joy and make me hate my brother. It's not because we don't struggle, it's because we don't see it. We're not aware of our disordered desire. That's the first category. What are the things that you desire that are stealing your joy and making you hate your brother? Second category is saying the wrong things. In verse 8, Paul says, put them all away. And he lists a, a list of characteristics that can cause us to say the wrong things. I'm going to go through them quickly. Anger and rage. Some of us are short-fused. We say whatever pops into our heads, and we're like people just walking around spraying a machine gun. Some of, others of us are more like silent killers. Uh, people look at us and think we're quiet and, and kind and patient on the outside, but people who know us well know that as soon as we get home, we spew it all. And then some of us do our damage. Our weapon of choice is a cell phone or a keyboard because our damage is done through social media and texting and, and keeping that alive. I can, I can just testify. I've been, I've been angry a time or two. I can't think of a time when I spoke in anger and didn't regret it later. Anything I've, I've ever said when I was angry, I can't think of anything that I'm proud of today. And if you think you can, I think you're probably deceiving yourself. Speaking in anger never works out for us. I love, it, it cracks me up when Christians are like, well, Jesus turned over tables in the temple. Okay, that was for a righteous cause, and B, you're not Jesus. Number two, he mentions malice and slander. Let's just come out and admit that for some of us, talking about people behind their back is our favorite sport. We're good at it. It makes us feel good to point out the flaws of somebody else, especially if we think they can never hear it. But there's a reason why Jesus said in Matthew 5 that if you call a man a fool, it's the same thing as killing him. Because people are made in the image of God, and if we run them down, even if not in the presence of that person, what are we doing? We're destroying the image of God in our own eyes and the eyes of everyone who hears. Then there's obscene talk. That's a, that's a battleground for a lot of us when we first come to Christ because we live in such a, a coarse and vulgar culture. And listen, I, I'm, I grew up in normal society. I grew up in a public school. I played sports. I'm unshockable when it comes to language, so this is not me being a prude, and I'm not telling you to go out and tell people to stop saying those words. I'm saying that this is an area where we need to be different. We need to be distinct. We need to show the world that we can speak words that bring life and not death. And then there's lying. There's a book written back in the 1990s. I remember reading it. I saw it in my library and checked it out because of the title. The title was The Day America Told the Truth. In that book, it said 91% of Americans regularly lie. They had done research. And I don't think we've gotten better in 30 years. There was a politician a few years ago, I won't say who or what party, but uh, this quote just stands out to me. This politician was being interviewed, and this was a national level person, 
being interviewed on national TV, and the journalist listed some inconvenient truths, some things that went against the, went against the politician's narrative, and the politician responded by saying, well, you have your facts, but I have alternative facts. Can you believe those words came out of that person's mouth? I have alternative facts. I can just speak these words and just say that they're true even though, that I know that I'm, even, even though I know they're not, and I can go on my way. Is it any wonder we're in the state we're in? What are the things that come out of your mouth on a regular basis that cause more harm than help? What are the, what are the speech patterns that you have that you need to destroy so you can walk in freedom and be a blessing and not a burden? And then the third category of sin he lists is what I would call prejudice, and that's in verse 11. When we think of that term, that, that term in terms of race because of the civil rights movement in our country, but really it means any time you prejudge someone else. And let's just, say, let's just say the truth about this. Everyone has prejudices in their heart because it makes life simpler. If you think you can put people in a box... You can just see them from a distance and go, oh, she's that kind of person. Oh, he, he belongs to this category. Then you don't have to go to the trouble of getting to know people and seeing them as fully human. We all have this. We all do this. And while I know a lot of Christians who uh, have been Christians a long time and, and would sooner uh, you know, chop off a, a finger than, than say a dirty word, but they will never come to grips with the fact that they've got prejudice in their hearts. And they'll never confess it because they don't see it as sin. Paul lists several kinds of prejudices people in that culture had. He, first, he says Jews and Greeks, circumcised and uncircumcised. We've, we've, we've put off all of that. We don't, we don't see people in those categories anymore. He knows that he himself, as a Jew, saw his Gentile neighbors as dogs, as uncircumcised, as people who God just created to fuel the fires of hell. But then Jesus came in and now he's the one who's evangelizing them and bringing them into the kingdom. Then he speaks to the, the Gentiles in the congregation. He says, there's no barbarian or Scythian. Now this, that word Scythian is not a word we use anymore, but the Scythians were seen as the least refined people in Rome. If you, could, if you were truly refined, you spoke Greek, you dressed in Greek clothing, you ate Greek food, you, you went to Greek entertainment. The Scythians were their own category. They were the trailer trash of the Roman Empire. And we all have those people in our lives, those categories of people we look at and we say, well, okay, um, you be kind to them, but you, know, you don't let your daughter marry them, you don't let your son hang out at their house, you don't invite them over for dinner because they're a lower class than we are. And then he says, slave or free. And that was the primary social distinction back in the Roman Empire because slavery wasn't an economic thing as much as a social thing. In other words, you could be a slave and be a doctor or an attorney or a, a, the manager of a household or a business, whereas I could just be a, a common laborer. But if I was free and you were a slave, I looked down on you. And that was the way society was structured. And Paul says, once you get saved, all of that should go away. And you should treat everyone the same. And as I said earlier, that Christianity in the early days was seen as a religion of women and children. It was also seen as a religion of slaves for this very same reason. Because people who were enslaved and couldn't afford to buy their freedom could say, when I, when I come to Jesus Christ, he sees me as his son, his daughter. And that's the way we should see others as well. So how do we kill sin? Those are the three categories, but how do we actually do the work? 
I'm indebted to a book by Jerry Bridges called The Pursuit of Holiness, which I highly recommend. And he says the way to kill sin is by two things, by conviction and commitment. Conviction is the inner ability to see your sin for what it really is. We lack self-awareness by nature. We can spot somebody else's sin from a mile away, and we find it repulsive. But our own sin, no big deal. Yeah, I have a I have a bit of a cowlick back here, and so sometimes I, I you know my, after the church, my wife will come up and say, "Jeff, your hair is standing up." Sure enough, I've got you know I'm like it's pretty ridiculous. Lacking conviction is like refusing to look in the mirror because you don't want to know. I want to challenge you to ask for the Holy Spirit's conviction. You may think, oh, I'm happy you're not knowing. Ignorance is bliss. Actually, no. Actually, no. You don't want to go around with your hair standing up. You want to know so you can correct it. Let me give you a prayer to pray, in fact. It's straight from the Scriptures. I use this myself, and it, it brings great benefit to my life. It's Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And here's what it says. You've probably heard it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Write down that reference and pray it every day and just see what happens. See if you don't become more aware of areas of your life where growth is needed. But not just conviction is needed, but also commitment. Commitment means the willingness to do whatever it takes to live free from sin. Some of you might remember the story of a guy named Aaron Ralston. They made a movie out of it, actually. Uh, Aaron Ralston, 20 years ago, was a young man, young engineer, uh, who lived on the West Coast, moved to Colorado because he was passionate about mountain climbing. His goal was he wanted to climb all of the, all of the mountains in Colorado that were 14,000 feet or higher. That was his life's goal. One day he was out climbing by himself. He was trying to scale a canyon wall when suddenly he dislodged a boulder accidentally and it rolled over onto his arm and pinned him against that canyon wall. And he couldn't move. He was stuck. And he was hoping maybe someone would come along who would rescue him, who would call for help, but no one did. He waited for five days. Can you imagine? Five days with no food and very little water just sitting there hoping for someone to come along when finally he realized this is not going to happen. I am going to die unless I do something desperate. And so all he had with him was a little multi-tool, you know, the kind with the pliers and the, and the tweezers and, and one little pocket knife apparatus. And with that, I won't go into details, but with that he managed to amputate his own arm so that he could survive. It took him an hour. And then it took him four hours uh, to climb down and, and head out into a trail where he was finally found by people who were looking for him and rescued. I think we can agree that's, that's a pretty serious commitment to living. If you're willing to do that to keep from dying, then you really want to live. And what I'm saying is we need that same commitment to living for Christ. I'm not talking about physical bodily mutilation. I'm talking about taking a serious look at aspects of your life that you know are getting in the way of you being fully committed to him and removing them, even though it's going to cause pain, even though maybe your, your friends and, and relatives will think you're crazy. 
I'm, I'm saying take an honest look and say, this is what's stopping me from being fully obedient. And I'm going to remove it no matter how much it hurts. And it may, be, it may be going to someone and apologizing. It may be confessing to God that you've got this sin issue. It may be going into treatment of some kind for an addiction. It, it may be uh, any number of very, very painful things. Cutting off a relationship that is toxic to you spiritually, mentally, emotionally. It may be uh, changing careers for some of you. But you need to be willing to do it. Because that's where life is found. What step are you holding back from today? The greatest story of commitment in the history of the world is of a very different young man. This one didn't grow up in the West. He grew up in Nazareth. His life's goal wasn't to climb mountains. It was to rescue you and me. And he saw that our sin had him trapped in a way because he couldn't walk away from our sin. He couldn't walk away from our degradation and our coming destruction. But he also knew he couldn't just forgive us because if he did, then he wasn't really God. Sin has to be punished, and yet he had to rescue us. And the only way out was through going to do the unthinkable, and that is to carry a cross up a hill and die for our sins, where the wrath of God against all sin was poured out on him, utterly destroyed him. But because he did that, we can all be rescued from eternal death. Now, we are in that five hours of our lives where we've been waiting long enough that some miracle would happen and we would just wake up tomorrow, change people, and it hasn't happened. And God's saying, when are you going to see? I died to bring you life and you're settling for death. When are you going to see? It takes commitment. It takes commitment to kill the sin that's stopping you from experiencing life to the fullest.